The second Bible reading this evening is on page 15 of the Bible, not too hard to get to, from the book of Genesis, and it's chapter 17. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. I will confirm my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. Abram fell face down, and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come, to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan, where you are now an alien, I will give you as an everlasting possession to you and to your descendants after you, and I will be their God. Then God said to Abraham, As for you... You must keep my covenant, you and your descendants, after you for the generations to come. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. For the generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised, including those born in your household or bought with money from a foreigner, those who are not your offspring. Whether born in your household or bought with your money, they must be circumcised. My covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. God also said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you are no longer to call her Sarai. Her name will be Sarah. I will bless her and will surely give you a son by her. I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. Abraham fell face down. He laughed and said to himself, Will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of ninety? And Abraham said to God, If only Ishmael might live under your blessing. Then God said, Yes, but your wife Sarah will bear you a son and you will call him Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. And as for Ishmael, I have heard you. I will surely bless him. I will make him fruitful and will greatly increase his numbers. He will be the father of 12 rulers, and I will make him into a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you by this time next year. When he had finished speaking with Abraham, God went up from him. On that very day, Abraham took his son Ishmael and all those born in his household or bought with his money, every male in his household, and circumcised them as God told him. 
Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised, and his son Ishmael was 13. Abraham and his son Ishmael were both circumcised on that same day, and every male in Abraham's household, including those born in his household or bought from a foreigner, was circumcised with him. Thanks be to God for his word. Okay, so now if you're visiting us this this um, uh, evening, we've been going through the book of Genesis for for a couple of months now, and we'll be going through the whole book of Genesis. And the reason why we do that is, in a sense, we let God set the agenda on what is taught. And so when we come to a passage like today, we don't skip it. I'm not sure if many of us blokes here tonight might feel a bit uncomfortable with talking about this topic, but we don't skip it. This is the Word of God. It's written there for our sake, uh, that we might might know of him and learn of him and love him more. So, So why don't we turn to God in prayer, ask him for his help. Ask him that we might know what he wants to teach, uh, what we should be learning tonight. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray for your mercy on us as we come to your word. A difficult chapter, we pray, Lord, that you might help us receive it as the word of God. Help us to know what it is that you're teaching us and how our lives might be changed by it. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, if you've received the outline on the way in, um, that will help you. And also, please keep your Bibles open up to Genesis chapter 17. Now, today we're considering this. What are the marks of a believer? So what do you think are the marks of a believer? Well, of course, that depends on the type of believer I'm talking about. And so when you see someone dressed this way, what do you think? What does he believe? Well, someone who dresses this way in this orange gown, well, that probably says to us that this guy is a Buddhist. What about this, someone who dresses this way? Probably says to us, this person who dresses in a burqa, says to us, this this person most likely is a Muslim. What about this one? Any guesses on who wears a turban? Yeah, the Sikhs, that's right. Okay. Now, what about Christians? What about Christians? What marks us out as believers of God, followers of Jesus? What marks us out? Well, if we look around the room here, there's really no consistency in the way we dress. We all dress quite, quite neatly, casually. Even, even the ministers here, Chris and myself, we don't wear a surplus. We don't wear those dog collars you see some ministers wear. So what is it that marks us out? as followers of Jesus. Well, Christians do have signs and, and things that mark us out. Now, since the first century, Christians have used this as a symbol of their faith. Have you seen this before? The fish. Seen it on, on cars, as stickers, on their bumpers. I'm not sure if you know what this means and the significance of this. You might be thinking, you know, are these group of people who have fishes on their cars, are they part of some fishing club or what's going on? But it's not that. This is a Christian symbol. But why the fish? Why the fish? Well, it's because the word fish in the Greek, ixthus, um, the letters there, 
They're an, they're an acronym for Christ Jesus, God's Son, Saviour. And you put those letters together, you get Ixus, and that means fish in Greek. And so this symbol has been used for Christianity since the first century. And why did they use this symbol? Well, it's because Christianity for the first three centuries, it was sort of like an illegal religion. It was secretive. Um, uh, they, they had to do things in, in secret. They, they met in secret places, in catacombs, underground. And so they had this symbol to say where they met. And there's this tradition um, that when a Christian met a stranger, they would draw an ark on the ground, and if the other person was also a Christian, they would finish off the ark and it would look like a fish. So that's one tradition. Um, and, and they had these symbols all over the place, on tombs, to mark that they were a Christian. They didn't use a cross initially. Strange, isn't it? They didn't use a cross. But of course the cross later on became the, the biggest symbol, the main symbol the main sign of Christianity. And the reason why they didn't use the cross initially, it only started to come to the fore around the end of the 2nd century or the start of the 3rd century, it's because it's associated with the crucifixion. People were still being crucified back then. And so they didn't use that. Christians didn't want to use that. It was associated with, with criminals. But eventually it became the sign of Christianity. Well, today in our passage, God gives Abram a sign a sign that marks him out as one belonging to God, as someone who, who is in a relationship with God. God gives Abraham the sign of circumcision, a lot more skin deep than the cross or the fish, a lot more personal than those signs. And so that's what we'll be thinking about today. Now you might be thinking, you know, why spend one sermon talking about this topic, circumcision? It's, it's hard, isn't it? It's a hard topic, but it's there, it's God's word, and it does teach us something. So how do we think about this? What are we to understand? Well, to help us understand Genesis 17, we want to be understanding where Genesis 17 fits into the, to the story of Genesis so far. We want to see how the story of Abraham fits into what has happened so far since the beginning. So the story so far... Now, to help us understand, I'll quickly go through what has happened. And what we have seen that has happened is this cycle. There's this cycle, this almost downward spiral that has been happening. We've seen humanity in wickedness, then God coming in judgment, but yet God showing mercy. And we've seen that several times. Let me show you. So beginning, Genesis. Is that You can see that? So creation, God's created the world beautiful, wonderful, and made humankind the pinnacles of creation, to live under God, to live in relationship with God. But yet humanity, only in chapter 3, they were wicked. They disobeyed God. They ate from the fruit from which they were not meant to. And so what did God do? Well, God judged them. God judged Adam, Eve, the serpent, the lamb, and God banished them from the garden, sent them away from his presence. And so this is part of the cycle. But that's not all. God, in fact, showed mercy. And we saw this at the end of chapter 3. What God did when God banished them from his presence, God made garments of skin for them. It was to, 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 for them to hide their shame. That was an act of God's mercy. But then this cycle continues. 
This cycle continues. Humanity, right in chapter 4, were wicked. Cain killed Abel. And later in chapter 4, Lamech, he boasted about killing another person. And by the time of Noah, every inclination of their heart was evil all the time. They were wicked. And so what did God do? Well, God came in judgment again, remember? The story of Noah, God came in judgment, and that was the flood, where God re- almost recreated the world, destroyed all that he had made. But in judgment, God showed mercy, this cycle again. God showed mercy to Noah and his family. And God sent that, the, the sign of the rainbow to show that he will never flood the world in that way again. But the story continues. There's this cycle once again. I'm not sure if you've picked that up. Humanity was still evil. Because what happened not long after the flood? This was at the Tower of Babel. They got together. They wanted to make a name for themselves. Build a tower that would reach the heavens. They wanted to disobey God. God told them to scatter. They got together instead. And so how did God judge them? Well, God came in judgment and God confused their language. God confused them so they couldn't work together. And the result of that was that they were scattered. In God's judgment, God was fulfilling his creation mandate to fill the earth and to subdue it. Remember that. So that's Genesis 1 to 11. Now Genesis 12, this man Abram comes on the scene. And for the next 14 chapters, the focus is on Abram, this one man. Now, what do you think the story of Abram is about? If you think about this cycle, what we've been seeing. The story of Abram, God appearing to Abram, God promising these amazing promises to Abram, is an act of God's mercy. So we're seeing this cycle three times. And and this is where Genesis 17 fits in. God appeared first in Genesis 12. God promised Abram. And now God appears once again in chapter 17. And so we want to understand our passage in the context that this is God acting in mercy. God being merciful to this one man, and through this one man, God will go about restoring the world, restoring the way it's meant to be, restoring the broken relationship between humanity and God. Okay, so that, I want you to understand, that cycle, and we are in the context of mercy, God's mercy. Okay, so chapter 17, what happens? Well, God appeared to Abram once again. And God appears to reaffirm the covenant, the promises that he made earlier. So have a look at verses 1 and 2. God says, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. I will confirm my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your number. And so God is reaffirming his promises to Abram. Now, you need to understand why Abram had to hear this. It's only a couple chapters earlier when God first appeared to him in chapter 12, or chapter 17, but that's 24 years. 24 years. God promised 24 years ago that he will be a great nation. He will be numerous and fruitful, but yet in this chapter, he still doesn't have a son with Sarah. He still doesn't have a son with Sarah. He's had one with her maidservant, but not with Sarah. And so he had to hear this. Sarah, at this stage, was already 90 years old. Just think about what he might be thinking. God's promising that he'll be a great nation. 
He's 99. Sarah's, Sarah is ni- uh, ni- uh, 90 years old. What's the chance of her having children? Now, I did something a bit scientific. I went around to check, you know, what's the biolog- biological age of a woman when she's stopped being able to have children? Uh, anyone know? Apparently, it's when menopause happens. I don't really know what that's about, but when that happens, you stop being fertile. And that's about end of, towards the end of 40s, uh, late 40s, early 50s. You can let me know. Uh, maybe Stephen moved it. You, you let me know. You're the doctor. And so women stop being able to biologically have children around, around 50. Sarai was 90 years old. But yet God was still promising to them, you will become a great nation. How is that possible? I did a bit more research. I, I, I tried to find out. So, so even though that's normal, around 50, women stop being fertile. Who was the um, oldest, oldest woman to have given birth? naturally and through natural conception. Well, I discovered that it's only in America, it's only in America, in Virginia, this woman by the name of Mrs. Pace in 1941, she gave birth to her 17th child, 17th, at 73 years old. Okay, so just say that is possible. Just say that was possible, that women can go on having children until they're 73 not sure if you want to, but just so you can. Well, Sarah here was already 90. Now, if you think biologically, it's impossible. And so you can see why Abram and, and Sarah is here thinking, ah, oh, there's no hope. God, you're just promising too much. You're playing with us. And so what does God do? Well, God reaffirms his promises, reaffirms his covenant with them. But not only that, what God does in this chapter is in fact quite remarkable. God, in fact, expands on it, expands on the covenant, and God extends it. God expands it and extends it. So how does God do that? Well, God expands on the covenant. Remember, earlier, Abram was promised that he would become a great nation, that his name will be great. But that now God expands on that. God says something quite interesting. God firstly changes Abram's name to Abraham. Now, why Abraham? Well, because Abraham means the father of many, the father of many nations. He's not only going to be a great nation, he's going to be the father of many nations. And we see this in verse 5. God says, No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. But God doesn't end there. Look how God expands it. Verse 6, I will make you very fruitful. Notice that word, fruitful. We saw that in Genesis, early on in Genesis. That was the creation mandate. Be fruitful, subdue the earth. Well, God was now promising that it will be through Abraham that God will fulfill the creation mandate. And so verse 6, God says, I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. Just imagine that. God is still promising those things, but expands on that. At this stage, they still have no children of their own. He'll be the father of many nations. Imagine being promised that. God says to you, you'll have many children, but your children, they'll become kings. They'll be prime ministers. They'll be presidents. That's just mind-boggling. Abraham, Abram, 
at this stage, Abraham, that would have been beyond his wildest dreams. And so God expands the covenant, but then God also extends it. The promises are made with Abraham, but also with his descendants. Have a look at verse 7. God says, I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come, to be your God and the God of the descendants after you. You see, God's extending the covenant. It was great in chapter 12, but now it's expanded and extended. By now, Abram, Abraham, by this stage, would have been speechless. But then what does God do? What else does he do? Well, he does the same thing to Sarai. Sarah, he changes her name to Sarah and promises really those same things. God reiterates the covenant and says that she will be the mother of many nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. And so what did Abraham think? Having heard these promises, having heard them expanded and extended, what would have Abraham thought. Well, Abraham, he laughed. He laughed. He's thinking, God, you're pulling my leg. You're playing with me, aren't you? And then Abraham, he came up with an idea. He said to God, well, God, I think I have things under control. Let's not make it too difficult for you, God. I already have a son. I, in fact, already have a son. It's not with Sarah, of course. It's with her maidservant, but really same thing, a son they're, they're boys, they look, they'll look the same. You know, I'll make it easy for you, God. Why don't you just let Ishmael be the, one to, be the one to live under your blessing? What did God say? Did God say, Abraham, Abraham, you're such a smart man. Why didn't I think of that? Of course, you already had a son. Why didn't I think of that? That, would have, that makes my job a lot easier. Did God say that? Well, no, God said, your wife Sarah will bear you a son, and you will call him Isaac. Verse 19, I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. And God says, it will happen this way. It will happen my way, not your way. Amazing promises, aren't they? Amazing promises. But notice what I skipped in the middle, the bit that's perhaps a bit uncomfortable for the blokes here. From verses 9 to 14, God requires something of Abraham. God requests something of Abraham. Something for him to do to show that he belongs to God. Something for him to do to show that he is part of this promise. Something for him to show that he is God's person. That he'll be God's people. And that was the circumcision. The circumcision of all males, boy and men. But we must ask, why circumcision? Why this sign? You know, why not make it easier for them, like the sign of the cross, the fish? Why circumcision? Why something so intense? Well, perhaps we were not given the reason, but perhaps it's to show the permanence of this covenant. There's no turning back once it happens. It happens, that's it. That's a sign. And it's to be a sign, you see. It's a sign to show, to demonstrate that there is a relationship. Abraham doing this does not create that relationship with God. It's to demonstrate the relationship that exists with God. 
It's a bit like in marriage. In our culture, most cultures, married people, what do they do? They wear a wedding ring, right? Wedding rings up, everyone, yeah? Okay, well, these are the married people. Okay, you see a wedding ring, it means they're off limits. They're no, no touching or no, yeah, anyway. So wedding ring, that's a sign to show that these guys with rings are in a relationship. They have a married, uh, they're married to someone else. And that's what circumcision was like, is to be a sign to show that there is already a pre-existing relationship with God. It's, it doesn't make the relationship, the rings don't make our relationship. Uh, Yvonne and myself, us wearing rings doesn't make our relationship. It was the vows that made our relationship that brought us together. This is just a sign of that relationship. And so the circumcision here that God is giving to Abraham, it's not to establish the relationship, it's to show, show really that, that he has this relationship with God. It's to be a sign that demonstrates that. And so what did Abraham do? Well, by the end of this chapter, his whole household, slaves, foreigners, his Ishmael and himself, they were circumcised on that same day. Just think about that. Everyone circumcised on the same day. That's amazing. And he's saying to God, yes, yes, I want to demonstrate that I am in a relationship with you. I want to demonstrate that I am a believer, that I believe in you, that I belong to you, as painful as it is. And this will be the sign all of us will be circumcised. And so that's what happens at the end of this chapter. That's our chapter. What are we to learn from this? Well, you see, this passage, this story, the story of Genesis, the story of Abraham, does not really stop here. Remember the spiral I talked about before? The spiral continues. It continues. The Bible does not end with Abraham. The downward spiral continues because humanity continues in wickedness. Now, just in the next chapter, which we'll be looking at next week, Sodom, the men of Sodom, wanted to engage in homosexual activity. Sign of their weakness. Later on in Exodus, after God saved these people out of Egypt, they knew that God was the one who saved them. They didn't worship God. Instead, they built a golden calf and worshipped that instead. And we still see wickedness today. This cycle continues today. I mean, just look at the world around us. In God's eyes... People worshipping animals, that's wicked. People worshipping other people, that's wicked. People engage in sexual immorality, that's wicked in God's eyes. That's filthy in God's eyes. Sex outside of marriage, that is wicked. And not only that, the regard, the disregard for human life, that is wicked in God's eyes. And we see that around today. The abortion... You know, in Victoria, it's so lax. The laws are so lax. Thousands of innocent, healthy babies are killed away each year. That is wicked. That is wicked. You turn on the news, and, and we heard recently of this murder of Jill, uh, murder of Jill, who works with the ABC. That's wicked. Still happens today. You see, this cycle is still going on. Wickedness everywhere around us, but there's also wickedness inside us. Our heart is wicked. When's the last time we thought lustfully about someone? When's the last time we envied what someone else had? 
When's the last time we were greedy? When's the last time we thought in our minds, I would love to just kill that guy? That's wicked. I'm not sure if you're laughing because you don't think that, or you do. But that's wicked. You see, the cycle is continuing. So what will God do? Well, we consider this cycle, God will come in judgment. God will come in judgment, in a judgment that's far more severe than sending Adam and Eve out of the garden. A judgment that will be far more severe than the flood that destroyed the world in the time of Noah. A judgment that will be far more severe than God coming down and confusing the languages of those at the Tower of Babel. Now, I don't like to say this because this is, this is tough stuff. But it's the judgment of hell. It's the judgment of hell. We don't, I don't take any joy in talking about hell. It's just a, a terrible place, a place of eternal torment. But the reality is that there will be people who will be sent to hell because of their wickedness, you see. But the cycle doesn't end there, does it? The cycle doesn't end there. God has in fact come and acted in merciful ways. And that is through his son Jesus Christ. Through his son Jesus Christ, God sent his son to die on a cross, to take the penalty for our wickedness. To die on a cross and to stop the cycle. To take away our punishment. And that is God's act of mercy. God's greatest act of mercy. Far more merciful than what God did with Noah. Far more merciful than what God did with Abram. And not only that, the promises to Abram, when Jesus came, in a sense Jesus expanded on that yet again. Abraham was promised that he would enter the land of Canaan. Jesus promises us eternal life in the kingdom of God. Heaven, that is the promise, expands on the promises of Abraham. And not only that, Abraham was promised that he would have kings from his descendants. There will be kings from kings of nations that will come from him. What does Jesus promise us? Well, Jesus, in fact, expands on that. Jesus will make you royal blood, sons and daughters of God. Sons and daughters of God. People who will reign with Christ in heaven forever. Expands on the promises of Abraham. And not only that, the cycle stops. For those who want this mercy. And so what are we to do finally? How can we be a part of this? What are we to show that we belong to God? What's the sign Abraham had the sign of circumcision. That was a sign. What are we called to do? To be circumcised as well? Is that what this is teaching us? Well, you see, the circumcision, the sign of circumcision was only a sign, an outward sign of the inside faith, you see. Abraham was only happy to be circumcised because he already believed in God. Early in chapter 15, he believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. And so this sign now was an expression of that, a sign that demonstrates that he does believe. But you see, in the New Testament, circumcision in the flesh is no longer longer required of Christians, no longer required of those who follow Jesus. But what has changed 
He said, it's now a circumcision of the heart. It's a circumcision of the heart that is required. And that hasn't really changed. It was the same with Abraham. The circumcision of the heart is a heart that believes in God, a heart that trusts in God's promises, a heart that loves God, a heart that obeys God. And so this is what Paul says in Romans. He says, circumcision is circumcision of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the written code. And that's why Paul can go on to say here in Galatians chapter 5, for in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. doesn't matter. You're circumcised or not in the flesh. doesn't matter. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. That is the circumcision of the heart. What happens inside? And so we started today talking about what are the marks of a Christian? What are the marks of a believer? What is the mark? Well, I want to say that it's still circumcision, but not circumcision of the flesh. It's a circumcision of the heart, a heart that believes in God, a heart that loves God, a heart that obeys God. That's the mark of a true believer. Now, you might have crosses in every room of your home. You might be one of those guys who's part of that fishing club and have a fish on your car. You might even have been baptised you know, several times. You might be one who religiously comes to church each week. They all look like good signs that you're a believer. But unless your heart is circumcised, unless your heart is one that believes in God, trusts in him, loves him, then all those signs are meaningless, just like the circumcision of the flesh. And if you think about this, this mark, this mark of the circumcision of the heart should be obvious to people around us. It should be obvious. We think about the other circumcision, which was the circumcision of the flesh. That's an outward sign, but you don't see others who are circumcised. It's sort of hidden, isn't it? You don't see that. Though it's an outward sign, it's kept hidden from everyone else. And you don't go looking for it. But the circumcision of the heart, you see, though it's an internal thing, it's meant to be seen by all. Isn't that interesting? It's internal, but it's meant to be seen by all. Because a circumcised heart will result in a life that loves God, that obeys God, that trusts him and delight in all those things. And this should be what people see. This should be obvious in your life if you have a circumcised heart. And so I want to end with this question. When people do look at you, what is it they see? What is it they see of your heart? Is it one that is circumcised, one that trusts God, loves God, depends on him? Or is it another one, a wicked one? Is it one that has been gripped by God's mercy? Or one that is awaiting judgment? Now, if you're not a Christian here tonight, I would love to speak to you about this great mercy of God because I want, in fact, God wants your heart to be circumcised. God wants your heart to be one that believes in him, trusts in him, and loves him. Let me pray.
Heavenly Father, we praise you for your act of mercy in history and ultimately through your son Jesus who died on a cross to stop the cycle that we may not need to face your judgment anymore. We pray, Lord, for those amongst us who are yet to be gripped by your mercy. We pray, Lord, that you might work in them, that their hearts might be changed. And we pray, Lord, for those of us who have circumcised hearts. We pray, Lord, that that might be seen in the way we live. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.